Hey, this is Travis with Oscar Mike Radio. And to prove that Marines really can fight in any climb in place, I am in Braintree, Massachusetts, outside in a parking lot doing number 150. And it's kind of cool because this is what my podcast has been about. I can take my rig, my stuff, go on the road and get the story where the story is. And I have a very special guest for number 150. It's going to be cool. Before we do anything else, I want to say thank you to my sponsor, Joyce Asak of Remax Energy. Hi, this is Joyce Asak with Remax Energy. I am a real estate agent that services the South Shore. You can follow me on Facebook or Instagram by following Joyce Asak at Asak Real Estate or my website, asakrealestate.com. You can also reach me directly at 508-942-7146. For any buyers or sellers that I'll be working with in 2019, a donation will be made in their name to 22Kill. So my guest for number 150 is a man by the name of Connor Sullivan. I met Connor at Jonathan Gosselin's veteran-owned, veteran-operated event uh, late last year in 2018, and he has a great story. Connor, welcome to Oscar Mike Radio. Thank you. I'm sitting at Jonathan's thing. We're doing the live cast, and this dude with this beard, kind of young, you're the youngest guy in the room, comes in, and you sit there and tell me that, hey, I had a heart transplant. I'm an Air Force veteran. I'm with a motorcycle club. I got kids, wife, and everything else. You've lived a lot of life in a short amount of time. Yeah, definitely. I kind of want you to start at the beginning. Can you kind of tell me about your Air Force career? So I joined right after high school, just like a ton of people do, whether it's they want to serve their country or they college doesn't work out for them, you know, or they're going down a wrong path. So basically for me, I, I tried a little bit of college, didn't really work out, and then joined the Air Force. Took the I took the ASVAB in high school. Didn't end up joining the Air Force, but it was always in the back of my head. And then after I tried a little college, then I decided, fuck it, I'm going to do that. Ran out of money for college, so enlisted, went to boot camp, all that. I was killing it in tech school and when I got to my first base. What did you, what did you go into tech school for? Uh, I was a crew chief. So 2 Alpha 5 through on Bravo, which is basically a crew chief. They, um, they're different in the Marine Corps and the Air Force. The Marine Corps one's actually... Uh, I'm pretty sure the crew chiefs in the Marine Corps are also the loadmasters and aerial gunners. The Air Force, they have three separate jobs for all those. But Was uh, that on a helicopter or aircraft? I worked on C-130s. Okay. Yeah, so. What's it like flying in a C-130? C-130 rolling down. <laughs> I actually never got to fly in one. I worked on them for three years, never got to fly in one. Really? Yeah, I was just getting to the point where um, if I started showing a, a little more initiative, started because I, I mean I was I was kicking ass I was learning a lot a few of the older guys started noticing that and what they do is if you if you're one of those guys out there that's really kicking ass they um they'll take you on trips different places a lot of the guys their first trip is to Thule Greenland which isn't really a fun trip it's <laughs> negative 30 degrees but um I would have enjoyed it so you're in the air force you're working on this aircraft that you never get to fly in yeah yeah that must have been fun yeah. because I remember some I, I was on a, a, in the air wing base in Yuma, and a lot of the Marine Corps guys, once they got out of their MOS school, within six months were respected to fly on their aircraft. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, the, so the year that I was in, I mean, there's obviously still conflicts going on. We, we all know about that. But uh, th- there wasn't so many deployments going out from my base like as, as much as, as there was years ago, you know what I mean? We were on six-month rotations to Bagram or um, 
they did four month deployments to Djibouti. When I was when I was there, it was it just wasn't my time yet. So I did a couple of years, and then uh, before I ended up getting sick, I was actually I was on the list to go to Bagram in April, and I got uh, sick in February. So so before we go into you know your health, what was your Air Force time like? Did you like it? Did you feel because I really don't know. I don't understand. As yeah, a Marine. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be glib here, but it's like I, I rarely talk to Air Force guys, and they're not really out there. Yeah, when they get out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I'll start at the beginning. I mean, boot camp was uh, summer camp with a couple works out, workouts per day. Uh, I can't lie about that. I'm not going to tell you that it was. It was. I mean, all the branches have dumbed down their boot camp nowadays because of sexual harassment and people being mean and shit like that. But especially the air force it wasn't it wasn't difficult at all i mean i i went i went in there luckily i i don't want to say i was a smart kid but i was i went in there knowing what to expect so when right. i when i showed up and the second day we did a pt test i knew what the fuck i had to do for the pt test i was there was some other kids they showed up they they showed up the first week of boot camp they ran a mile and a half in 18 minutes what? Which I didn't. I don't understand if they didn't know where they were coming, where they. I mean, where they were going. But you would think they. I mean, you can go you can on walk you, a mile in yeah, eighteen minutes. Yeah, you could go online and search a quick video and realize, okay, shit, that's what I got to do. I got to run push ups and sit ups for a PT test. So then now I'm going to prepare for that. So when I get to the United States Air Force boot camp, I can I can excel at that. But for some reason, there were some kids that just I, I didn't know. I, maybe their parents pushed them to go there, but. Yeah, so boot camp was easy. I excelled in there. I got um, I got an honor graduate coin, top ten percent based on your your grades, your PT tests, your overall. Your MTI has to approve of it. Did you go to boot camp in Texas? Yeah, Shepherd, uh, Lackland, sorry. So how is it like coming from this area of the country down to Texas? I mean, at boot camp, I didn't really get to explore Texas at all. So right, right. it was just, I mean, it was the only thing that was different down there was the weather, basically. So I was down there between January and March. So it was uh, January and March. Yeah, it was, it was a hell of a lot different than winter was up here. But um, yeah, I didn't really get to ex- explore Texas at all until I got to tech school. So, so what was tech school like? Uh, yeah, so tech school, we went to Wichita Falls in Texas. That's yep. Shepard Air Force Base. It's a huge AETC base. Tech school, that's where we, it was broken up into two courses. We did a fundamentals course where you learn basic airplane stuff. And then we did um, a specific course where you're broken up into whether you're working on C-130s, B-52s, um, A-10s, fancy fucking drones, uh, like whatever whatever you're going to work on, you go to a class based on whatever plane you're going to work on, and then you further your knowledge on that single plane, which is funny because the information you learn there, it, I mean, it's just basic stuff. Like the, the C-130 that I'm going to be working on has four engines. It has the wingspan is, I think, 137.2 feet or something like that. So it was all basic information that helps, but it really it's not going to teach you how to do your job once you get to your first base. That's, when you get to your first base, that's where you'll start you know training so there's a lot of on the job training yeah yeah exactly that, that it's, complex. Yeah. it's all on on the job training so you graduate tech school and go to your first duty station i i grew up in shreveport where there was barksdale air force base and i've talked to a lot of air force guys and for them it was like a normal nine to five job they really didn't it wasn't really like an identity it's just like hey i'm in the air force i'm going to job i'm going to do my thing and come home 
you know, how was it like for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was somewhat like that. I I I was um, a single. Well, I wasn't single. My uh, fiance was back home, but I was uh, on paper. I was a single airman. I wasn't a married airman. I was in the dorms. I was an E three in the dorms. So it really was like the Air Force was my life down there because I didn't have my family wasn't down there. My family was just my friends around me. That the the whole base basically was my life. I didn't live off base, but if, from a job standpoint, it, going to uh, work on the planes was kind of like a eight to four, nine to five type job, you know. So, uh, like I said, when I met you at Jonathan Gosselin's, uh, you know, office, the first thing that that you know, your your brothers and and when I say your brothers, your motorcycle brothers, and Jonathan says like, look, this guy had a heart transplant. I'm like, get out. He looks like he's in tip top shape. So what happened to your health that led to that, man? That was pretty intense. Yeah, so um, it was funny because leading up to it, there was no sort of signs, you know. There's nothing in my family that leads to heart disease. My my dad runs ultra marathons. I think last weekend was his 33rd marathon, and then he's done... um, 50 kilometer races, 50 mile races. What? And then, yeah, he did a hundred kilometer race, uh, which is 62 miles. <laughs> so they, there was nothing in my, even grandparents too, there was nothing in my family that led to any sort of hint of heart disease, heart problems, nothing, diabetes, nothing. When I was, uh, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas. That was my first uh, duty location. I was there for a couple of years, basically just doing the nine to five job, working on the aircraft. I was on swing shift, so it was four to midnight after doing mid shift for a while, which was midnight to eight in the morning, which is completely fucks up your sleep schedule. But, um, yeah, I was doing four to midnight for the longest time. And, um, I was otherwise healthy, you know, I PT tests, I still get 96s on them. And, uh, yeah, I think my mile and a half, I would, I would run in uh, sub 10 minutes every, every PT test. So I was, I wasn't, I wasn't really a runner, you know, some people ask me now, are you, are you, are you, were you a runner beforehand? I really wasn't because I, I mean, I was forced to do it. The Air Force made me run, so that's you had to run. Yeah, exactly. So, I, but I on my off time, I didn't say like, oh, I'm gonna jog. I, I did at the gym sometimes, but I wasn't, I wasn't a jogger. I was, I was just like every other kid that gets out of tech school. You get to your first base, you want to get fucking yoked up, you want to get big, you know. So I was in the gym like doing that mildly, you know. I never. I never got shredded, but <laughs> so you're doing this, and then what's the first indication that something is not right? Yeah, so I um I started getting a little um like flu-like symptoms um, around January time, so I figured uh, January and I mean January is in Arkansas; they're still cold. They have ice storms, couple snow days, but um I I thought it was you know just cold uh cold the sim- like cold symptoms, a flu maybe, um so I just my whole life, I just, I would just, you know, continue on basically, right, you know, right, right. It'll, I'll sweat it out or something. Um, but prior to that, I was going to the gym every night. I was going to uh, jujitsu in the mornings um, off base. It was a jujitsu school I went to. And um, so after those flu-like symptoms came by, I started getting, I think the first time I noticed anything really, it was probably at, at uh, jujitsu one time where um Cause uh, there was a few, there was, um, a few guys there, uh, this purple belt, he used to say that one of my best, uh, one of my best things was that like I would get, somebody would get me into side control and then I would just, cause most white belts, they, they just spaz out. So I would get into side control. Somebody would get me into side control and then I would just calm down and then 
figure out what to do and execute it from there. And then um, I did that one time, and then I was I was laying there, and I figured I, I I thought I felt like I was out of breath more than I normally would be after rolling for about five minutes, uh, grappling for five minutes. So I was at a little more out of breath than I normally was, and I was like, okay, that's weird. Uh, you know, this doesn't feel normal. Um, but like I said, I just pushed it off. I kept on my my normal duty day. You know, I continued to just go to work the next day, um, figured nothing of it. And then um, things from there just got progressively worse. So I started, uh, I started throwing up and having diarrhea. I think it was about like two weeks of throwing up and diarrhea. So obviously something's going on, you know. Right. So I, 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 but still I just thought it was a sickness because there's nothing, you, you don't, when because my heart was failing and my other organs were failing and um it wasn't really it wasn't like i was uh my heart was doing weird heartbeats you know irregular heartbeats or nothing like that it was just i just felt sick um weak and sick then i uh i lost about 15 pounds in two weeks which uh at the time i was trying to lose weight so it was i looked on the i looked on the scales like oh cool <laughs> but then, then it was like that's not healthy though, because I didn't I didn't work that hard that week to lose that much weight, and um, then I was going up and down. I lived on the second floor of the dorms, and I would go uh, barracks for you Marines. <laughs> yep. I lived on the second floor of the dorms. Oh, you actually called it dorms, guys. Yeah, yeah. So I'd uh, I'd go up the metal staircase, and so just go up probably about 12 stairs turn around go up another 12 stairs and then i'd open the door start walking down the hallway to my room and at that point i was out of breath and oh, wow. i i literally i just got out of my car and walked up the fucking stairs and i was out of breath so i was like all right this is something's going on so i um i actually went to the on-base uh doctor which is a terrible idea i went to the on-base <laughs> doctor it was um Air Force Lieutenant was the doc. It was a yeah. It was a uh, first lieutenant was the doctor. I don't know his name. I, even if I did, I wouldn't put him on. <laughs> I put him online. But um, yeah. So I I went there to saying, oh, I think I have flu-like symptoms basically because I still I, I never expected that something would be wrong with my heart because I was I was in the gym. I was doing jujitsu. I was getting over 95s on my PT test. There was nothing that led up to that my heart would be a problem. Um, so I went there, I said, yeah, I want to get checked out for a flu or whatever. Um, and then uh, they did an EKG, They and the, the uh, doctor said, um, you have a possible heart murmur. There's like, a, your EKG has an irregular heartbeat. So I, um, they said, we've got to get you a referral for a cardiologist to check it out. And then they did a, um, they did blood tests, and then they wanted to do a, uh, a stool test to figure out if there was a, any GI thing going on. Because I, I told them I'd been throwing up and diarrhea. And um, then I dealt with the referral department in the clinic, which is, was absolutely awful. They, they ended up never even getting me the referral. Um, so I call, you have to get a referral for the off base. Right. Yeah, I don't know if it's the same. on the No, in Yuma, <laughs> uh, when I was stationed in Yuma... You had the base doctor, which was, people don't believe me, it's very rudimentary. It's very basic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're trying their best, but it's basic. And if they can't handle it, they have to give you referral to go to Yuma Regional. What they prefer to do is send you to uh, Balboa, which is in San Diego. So you got to be really hurt to want to go there. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, okay, same thing. Yeah, so, yeah, it was um, similar there where if you go to the Air Force doctor, it's basically to get a letter that gets you three days off of work or, or they tell you you're fine, go back to work or drink more water. But, uh, and then that's what I was expecting. I was expecting, like, oh, sweet, maybe I'll get three days off of the flight line for this. But um, they told me they were going to get me that referral, and they actually um, – I was coughing and stuff like that. Like I said, I thought it was a flu. They actually prescribed me codeine, which is is terrible for a failing heart. They, I mean, they couldn't tell that the heart was failing at that point, but they prescribed me codeine. Luckily, I didn't take any of it because I didn't. I wasn't gonna go back to my room and and swallow down some cough syrup and feel all high around the dorms. You know, I was already feeling shitty enough. I didn't want to to drink the the cough syrup. You know, but um. And I think the that was February. That was in February, so it was either end end of January or first week in February because the Super Bowl was going on too. I forget. I think it was uh, when in Carolina that was playing. It was a few years ago. Right. But um, that's when I did. I went to watch the the game with the guys because uh, we stayed on base for the for the game. So I went to watch the game with the guys, and uh, that's when I noticed like something was really wrong with me because I was we were. Uh, during, I mean, during the um, Super Bowl on base, I don't know if you guys did the same thing, but it was a fucking keg party, basically, you know? Pretty much. It was awesome. You go outside, you're playing football, you play tackle football out in the out in the yard, and I was actually out there, and I, I like, started to play, and then I didn't want to play anymore, and I was, I was, I mean, I was a competitive young kid in the Air Force, right, so I, I wanted to play, you know, I wanted to play tackle football with the guys, but I, I was, like, I was feeling shitty, I was out of breath, I was like, I don't want to play. And then I went and I didn't want to even drink a beer. And I was like, all right, something's really messed up with me. I don't want to drink a beer. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so uh, probably a few days after that, they, they didn't get the referral for me. Then I was on the flight line. We just finished. Um, again, I was on four to midnight shift. So it was probably about 9, 9 p.m. I, uh, we had just finished an inspection on an aircraft, uh, combo inspection. And uh, we were standing in front of the aircraft waiting for the uh, bread truck to come around and pick us up. And uh, I was talking to, it was either Sergeant Castro or Staff Sergeant Wilson. I was talking to them. And I uh, I turned around. I said, hold on a second. I threw up all over the flight line. And they were like, um, they're like, you've been feeling off the past few days. They're like, how about you like, just leave work tonight, go to the ER and get checked out. So I uh, I had to leave work that night at 9 p.m. and figure out what closest ER is open because I didn't I never had a reason to go to the ER right. off base you know so I figured if I'm on base anything happens to me they'll they'll bring me somewhere but uh, they told me to leave go to the ER so I had to figure out what that is and then actually at the time I had my uh, my truck was broken down my because um, I blew the engine in the truck at the off road park in Arkansas but um, <laughs> yeah. But so I didn't have a vehicle, so I actually had to hit up my buddy, um, this kid Lamb. He's from uh, Jersey, one of one of my really good friends. And uh, I I called, I woke him up actually because he was on day shift. I called him. I said, "Hey, uh, can you take me to the ER?" And he's like, "Yeah, no problem." So he drives me to the ER. We're sitting in the um, in the waiting room, and then they they do an EKG, they find the irregular heartbeat, and then they do blood tests, and then uh, and then blood pressure check all the basics and then they said all right uh we're gonna admit you into into the er um so they bring me back there and then they start doing uh blood cultures i think it's called they started a ton more blood checks and then they said all right you're uh, you're staying overnight with us 
And I was like, all right. My buddy came in, uh, Lamb came in. I told him, like, yeah, I'm staying. Like, leave. You got to go to work in the morning. And uh, they kept me overnight that night. And then it admitted me into the ICU there saying um, something's up with your heart. And then that's when they did. Um, they took me. They did more uh, EKG stuff. I think uh, Echo. They did, yep. they did that stuff there. And then they um, they brought me in for a right heart cath where they, they put an IV in your neck. Oh, that uh, must have been fun. Yeah, yeah. Now they're second nature to me. It's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it did, so the, um, yeah, the, the right heart cath, they, they put the IV in your neck. It goes down into your heart and they can test the pressures in your heart and the uh, ejection fraction of the heart. So my, the pressures were shit, I guess. I don't know the numbers, but they were shit. And um, the EF, the ejection fraction, a normal normal heart, I'm pretty sure is about 60 to 70. And uh, mine was at 7%, meaning the, the blood that's coming into the heart, uh, how much of that blood is getting pumped out to your vital organs. So my heart was only working at 7%. And um, that's why the my other organs were failing as well. Um, just weren't getting enough blood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, what's going through your mind as all this stuff is starting to go down now and you're starting to understand that there's something really wrong with you. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was still at this point, it was still all kind of, uh, like, all right, cool. Like where's the medicine basically, you know? Um, cause I, I mean, I didn't, I, I don't come from a medical background. I don't know anybody, uh, that's in a medical background except for my brother's fiance. Now she's a nurse, but back then I didn't know anything. So I was like, all right, you're telling me there's something wrong with my heart. I didn't know at I didn't know at the time that an ejection fraction of seven percent is is completely awful, and that uh, the paperwork had me and I think I think it was class four, or stage four, however they class it, class four or stage four kidney failure too. Um, but all the organs were failing, and uh, and then they um, yeah I didn't know any of that so really through my head it was it was I was like all right what what kind of IV do you need to put me on so I can go back to work basically <laughs> I was I was just trying to you know get back to work so I get back to feeling good so then I can get back out there on the flight line and, and learn more because at that point I was I was kicking ass I was learning a lot I was really starting to actually like the you know like the the four to midnight grind of working on the airplanes getting dirty busting your knuckles you know but um yeah, I mean, at that point, I just, I was, all right, how, how are we going to fix this base? Because I didn't, I didn't care. I mean, I didn't know the, the, the magnitude of how big the situation was, you know. So all this happens, and then they tell you you need a new heart, and, and then what are you thinking? Yeah, so actually, the, uh, I was in um, Baptist Health uh, in Little Rock, and they said, uh, I had two doctors. One of them had just recently graduated from UConn, and then another one was an old guy. So, uh, I was, I mean, I was a young air force guy, this old guy comes in and, uh, he's, he's typical, like slow talking doctor. I'm like, well, fuck this guy. He doesn't, he doesn't know his shit. And then the, the Yukon guy would come in and said, oh, we're going to get you back to work in three, four days. You're going to be, you can be fine. You'll be back at jujitsu and in the gym. You know, fell awesome. I'm like, all right, cool. I like that guy. <laughs> I like the Yukon guy. And then, uh, the so I it was kind of good cop bad cop type thing with the doctors because I'd have the young guy saying that and then I have the old guy he came in the next day like yeah we're um you might need a heart transplant and at at that point my uh my my um mother or father had already flew down there my my wife now uh 
she flew down there and they were in the room with me and it was all like a kind of collective like what the fuck did he just say and it was like but the other guy yesterday just said that i was gonna be at work in two days i'm gonna i'm gonna be back on the mats at jiu-jitsu in three four days i'm gonna be good like you just have to do this this iv uh milrinone drip or um i forget the different ones they had but you just got to do the iv drip and then it would be good because that's how I was my whole life, you know. I was I I would get sick. I'd get I don't know. I probably had the flu a couple times when I was a kid, but never got checked out, and then I was good. So that's what I thought was going to happen with this. But then you had the old doctor coming in saying, "Yeah, uh, you might need a heart transplant." It's like you don't know what you're talking about. And then it, it ends up eventually he was correct, but at the time I was like, "No, nah, I'm not listening to that." <laughs> but um, yeah, I was in the I was in the ICU there, and um. They were giving me, they had um, their hospital food. They were giving me, like, um, Gatorade that was loaded with sodium. It was terrible for the heart. They were giving me tea and coffee on the on the trays, which is terrible for the heart. There were all sorts of shit that they shouldn't have been doing. Um, the my, my family, my wife, and my, uh, my um, actually, I think, yeah, my brother came down there, too. I don't because I never I never asked my family because that's kind of their thing. I never asked my family when the when the Air Force called them and said like your son is sick. I I don't know how how much the Air Force told them. I didn't know if they told them like your kid's in the hospital dying or if the I don't know the magnitude of which they told them because I mean it was my 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 mother my father my brother his girlfriend at the time and then my wife came down so i didn't know if they i don't know how how much they told them basically but um yeah they kind of have uh they they were because i was just in the room in the icu trying to get better basically and then i guess there was other other parts of the uh, hospital that were subpar to hospitals around here where uh my family didn't approve and um the um air force wounded warrior was actually there uh every day um they're the guys that um, when the the people get out that uh, lose limbs or, they're, or wounded or um, whatnot, they um, Air Force Wounded Warrior, they have a ton of events. They still email me every week. They have <laughs> all these events that you can uh, that you can attend to and they're fully paid for for um, for wounded airmen and stuff like that. And um, they take care of families basically. So that's why they were there for me. But um, they they put together the the team for like the Invictus Games and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, they were there trying to trying to figure out what my family needed or whatever, trying to explain uh, what the what the Air Force can do for them. While because I wasn't just a kid down there in the in the hospital and the family's gotta get there. You know, I couldn't imagine my family having to go through that if I if I wasn't in the Air Force. Luckily, I had. The, the insurance was paid for that I had people watching my back watching my family's back during it being uh air force wounded warrior so um, I'm glad that they uh helped out my family but um with uh, with the help of them and then my family and then uh the um, the wing commander had something to do with it too they they ended up getting a, me a Learjet uh air ambulance all the way back to Boston because um my family couldn't really stay down there for an extended period of time, you know. Right. I mean, I I technically was dying in the hospital, but it doesn't mean that uh, my wife, my brother, his girlfriend, and my parents can just put their life on hold and, and stop paying bills, you know what I mean? Um, 
although the Air Force Wounded Warrior would have stepped in and helped with that. They actually they they offered everything, and then um, another guy there, uh, St- Staff Sergeant Wesley Castro. He's my supervisor, and uh, First Sergeant basically told him like, go to the hospital and be with him and his family, and uh, he was there nonstop every like every minute of the day. He would, um, they would leave there. He'd ask my parents if they needed a ride anywhere. He asked my parents and wife and all of them if they wanted to come over for dinner. He's the absolute. Uh, per- I don't know how he is now. He could be a shit bag now. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, at, at the time, he was absolute perfect. Uh, uh, um, Guys, yeah, system. perfect, perfect support system, perfect model of what of what a supervisor of what a staff sergeant should be doing. Yeah. Um. I, I there was other there was other guys I know that they probably. I wouldn't say it wouldn't do the same, but he was he was so on point of asking my family if they wanted to come over for dinner, all all sorts of. I mean, he was a hell of a guy to do that. So, but um, yeah, they got me a Learjet back here to Boston, and um, they called. I don't know who. I don't know what the conversation was. I didn't care at the time, but um, somebody called up here and got um a connect at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital downtown and they were able to um get a hold of a doctor michael giverts that said like yes we'll we'll take your we'll take your son in or whatever because i mean those hospitals down there are packed so it's not like like you can't just walk in there and say hey i'm sick i gotta go to like the sixth floor and get taken care of by this amazing doctor that everybody comes to from out of country to learn from but uh he he said uh, like yeah we're busy here but we'll we'll take in your son uh, so we f- I flew there my mom actually came on the plane with me which is hilarious because she is deathly afraid of airplanes so but uh, <laughs> That's her baby yeah yeah but um yeah it was a it was a Learjet and uh, it was we flew low and fast and um, they the pilots were actually amazing they they everything about the flight was completely smooth because I I was in a stretcher so they. Uh, they brought me in an ambulance from the hospital to the Little Rock Airport, and I got. Then uh, they brought the stretcher over the aircraft. I stood up and I walked into the plane, which is funny because they're telling me my my heart's failing and all this shit. But I was able to stand up with the IV pole, walk over to the plane, walk up the stairs, lay down, um, and then I I I was laid down for the whole flight. I had the IVs in, and they had um in uh, on flight nurse. Basically, that was watching my numbers the whole flight. There wasn't one point that he took his his eyes off those numbers, and um, and then the other one. I think there was two nurses, and then the other one kept asking my mom if she was all right. And uh, but it was. I mean, everything about this flight was perfectly smooth. I don't know if if that's normal operations for uh, huh. air ambulance, but it was it was perfect. And um, so I, I showed up at Logan. They they brought an air ambulance, uh, not an air. Uh, they brought a regular ambulance out onto the uh, tarmac, put me from the plane into that ambulance, and then they drove me from there to Brigham and Women's, and then uh, rolled up into Brigham and Women's. They put me on the bed and uh, took me on the elevator up to the floor, um, and then started doing tests on me basically at that minute, and then into the next morning they were doing blood tests and all that stuff, and they. Uh, they actually did the um, the same right heart cath that they, they, they did in Arkansas. They did it again in uh, Brigham and Women's and uh, basically to solidify the, like, okay, your heart's fucked up. And then uh, they were just doing more tests, more tests. It was a couple of weeks, and then um, 
they had mentioned uh like yeah you're you're you are going to need a transplant so that was kind of uh it, it was the old guy that I didn't like down in Little Rock was was correct, but it was kind of it was different hearing it from another doctor. You know what I mean? It was like, all right, okay, I, I guess I do. I guess this is something. You know, this is a reality that's that's uh, occurring right now. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just IV medicines for a few days and then I'll get back to the flight line. I'll be good. I'll be back at jujitsu. It, it wasn't that anymore. It was okay. I actually am really sick now. I'm, I'm I gotta figure out what the fuck we do from here you know so uh they told me i needed the transplant and they said um they introduced me to this idea of uh of the lvad the left ventricular assist device and um i think two two of my friends was at, were actually there um and they they came in and uh brought this this little metal pump it looks like a little metal turbo basically and uh and then these wires coming from it and then they had batteries and then a controller and they said yeah like this is what we're gonna have to put in your body and my friends are sitting there and like i'm looking at them and i I mean i was weak and and sick but i just i sat there and listened they gave me a 45 minute demo of of what this fucking little turbo thing is and i said okay that's cool like whatever still still kind of thinking i mean they they told me that i probably need a transplant but still kind of thinking that like i mean in the when the doctors would leave the room it was like i'd kind of turn to my friends and my parents or whatever and we'd be like oh yeah but this is this is last resort that's that's not what we need to do yet the medicine's gonna work right the medicine the the ivs will work they're they're working on that they're upping your dose They, they lowered your dose that's a good sign you know that means you're doing better your numbers did better um and so, and then a couple of days later, they brought the LVAD in again and gave me another demo on the, the little fucking turbo thing. And then, and then it was like, all right, they're showing this to me twice. What is, what is, <laughs> why are they showing it to me twice? Does this uh, mean I need that or something? And, uh, turns out they, I, I did, it was basically the LVAD. Um, if your heart's failing like that, like, um, at 7% ejection fraction, if your heart's failing at that rate, the uh you can get on the transplant list and um you're on there's certain statuses on the transplant list there's levels to it um so if you're on the high level basically if you're in the hospital with a swan in your neck and all these uh ivs in you if you're living in the hospital then that would be considered the the top level so i was able to get that for a couple weeks and um it was I was it was like okay hopefully I get a transplant in the next week or two or whatever and then uh, they realized that wasn't gonna happen because um, the transplant's based off blood type and body size so it has to be a perfect match. Um, no kidding. Yeah. So um, uh, there's a lot of people they get in the hospital and they wait 14 days and then all of a sudden a heart pops up because they got they got good blood type they got good size and then it, and then they're in the hospital so it, it happens quickly. But um, for me, they said, like, you're going to need this LVAD as a bridge to transplant, meaning you're going to have to have this LVAD in your in your body and then have the batteries, the controller, all that. You're going to need that um, until you can get a transplant, basically. So we'll, we'll give you the LVAD, and then we'll put you on the list, and then when you get the call, we'll take the LVAD out, we'll put the new heart in, and then you're good to go. Um, so they, um, it was, I think, February, no, March 26th, um, 
they implanted the uh, LVAD into, into me. And then I was at the hospital for about two, two and a half weeks after that, uh, learning how to use the thing. Because it's, uh, I mean, the controller is about as big as my phone here. And then there's a bunch of buttons on it and numbers and shit. And then there's uh, three wires coming out of it. One of them is the drive line, which um, goes into your abdomen. There's, um, they, they pierce your abdomen and the, the drive line goes through there. And it's, it's about eight gauge wire like eight gauge electrical wire um nice. yeah probably like this cord here and that goes through your abdomen and then um the rest of that wire it gets skinnier when it gets in in your body but the rest of that wire goes up to the the little turbo that's hooked up to your heart and um it's hooked up to one of the valves or whatever and it basically spools up the blood and makes it makes the it helps the heart pump it out so that ejection fraction is seven percent where the blood is coming into the heart and not getting pumped out that blood will come into the heart with the turbo and then the turbo will help pump it out faster so uh then you're then you're the vital organs that were failing they actually they'll start getting that blood um that way you can live outside of the hospital not on ivs with the with the failing heart but the lvad is basically keeping you alive so so until um, they find a new heart yeah exactly so then the um then there's two other wires that come off the controller that go to batteries, and the batteries were about um, about an AR-15 mag size. Okay. And then you put them into uh, the um, battery connectors. Basically, the wires go to the little little holsters, and the batteries go in. And uh, you leave the hospital without with, with like I think four pairs of batteries, so you keep a spare one. You have one in there, and you have two charging all the time. That way, you can constantly swap them out. Um, Luckily, I got, uh, I did it um, for the certain LVAD I got because it's about three different ones. For the LVAD that I did, um, it was a trial. Basically, it, was, it's not, it wasn't approved yet in the United States. It was still technically a study, um, even though it was approved in uh, European countries like uh, Germany. Um, so I agreed to take this new heart pump. Um, there was... The brand that I took, there was two different ones. There was a HeartMate 2 and the HeartMate 3. The HeartMate 2 was the common one that people were getting. And then the HeartMate 3 came out, and they said there was less chance of it clotting than the HeartMate 2 because with the uh, with that little turbo, the thick blood goes in there, and then it can, clot, it can clot the pump, and then the pump's not working anymore, and then they'll have to open you up. And Oh, that must. Yeah, exactly. It happens It happens more often than you think, too. Hmm. Um but that, that way you're on blood thinners, so it thins the blood, so it goes through there faster. But um, that I would that was a trial for that heart pump. So luckily that one, um, it supposedly clots less than the heart made too. So um, yeah, I had that pump. I um, so it was about two weeks of learning how to use it, learning uh, emergency procedures on it, basically. Um, my family had to learn how to learn how to uh they had to get trained how to use it what happens if an emergency happens i had to wear uh, a medical uh dressing over the the driveline site where that driveline goes into your abdomen i had um the my family had to learn how to change that the uh, bandage that way um the driveline site doesn't get infected which happens a lot with people so they don't keep it clean or certain things but um yeah, so I had a I had that heart um, that heart pump, and uh, when you get it, they give you basically like a it's like a coupon. They give you uh, like a thirty day coupon 
that you can it's not it's not an actual physical coupon but it's it, it's that's the idea of it it's a 30-day coupon where you can use 30 days to be at the top of the uh the list so at that i think they they changed it now the the transplant uh categories but at, then it was a status like a b and then like a status seven um so status a means you're gonna get the call first and then status b means like you're, you're the second tier of people that need the transplants, but you have something like the LVAD, which is keeping you alive, or your your failure isn't that bad. You still need a transplant, but it's you're still living right now. Or you have um, at-home IVs. Some people have uh, IVs hooked up to them constantly with backpacks and stuff. But um, it was a 30-day coupon to be on the A-list. So uh, they actually... They were asking me when did I want when I wanted to use that when I got out, and I had just gone through the LVAD surgery, and uh, before before going into the hospital, I was scared of needles. I was scared of like everybody poking and prodding me and shit. Right. <laughs> so then I I did this LVAD surgery, and then they're like, "When do you want to use your your 30 day status A coupon?" It was like I I don't want to. I, I'm not ready for the next surgery. Um, and then they they kept pushing me to to use it, but I was I was after the LVAD. Even though the LVAD the LVAD sucks because it's I mean there's a a metal pump inside of you. You got all these batteries to sleep at night. I had to plug the controller into the a wall plug that's plugged into the wall. So I needed to be connect. My heart was connected to batteries or the fucking wall in my bedroom all the time. So it was kind of. I get out of the hospital, I have that thing, and then it's like, all right, you want to do it again? Let's open up your chest again for the transplant. It was like, I, I understand I need the transplant, but I, I wasn't ready. So I was I was on that status B for a few months, and then uh, like July 4th time, that's when they, they told me to use the coupon. Uh, so I used that, and I uh, ended up, so they, they tell you to use it around July 4th because all the drunk drivers. <laughs> so a lot of, because um, obviously like, for for or- drinking and driving. Yeah, exactly. For organ donors, the a lot of the a lot of the deaths that lead to um, organ donation for hearts, at least, or you know, um, drunk driving incidents. Because it, especially when I was young and they were looking for a young, healthy heart, it was drunk driving incidents. Um, if you accept the uh, risk of taking a high risk donor, it can be um, uh, opioid. Uh, um, like IV drug use, because when that happens, they uh, they they go brain dead, but their other organs are fine. Um, or uh, they say um, like gunshot wounds to the head and stuff like that, because the the um, I guess the other organs still uh, are still working. So they they told me to use it around July Fourth time, because that's when all the I mean it's summertime, July Fourth, all the holidays, people are out there drunk driving. So I used that 30 days and ended up not, it didn't work for me. So I, I dropped back to a status B and then um, that was kind of a, uh, I mean, again, I wasn't really ready for the surgery, but it was kind of like, I, I, I told him I wanted to use that coupon. I was like, all right, we're going to, I'm going to get it in the next 30 days. So I was trying to, you know, amp myself up for it because it was, it, it's a scary thing going in for another sure. open heart surgery when you just got out of one. And, uh. And it it was kind of a, a it was kind of a blow because it was after the thirty days like ended and I was like uh, it didn't work so now I have to go back on the status B and I was if it didn't work if I had, if I waited on 
status A for 30 days, I didn't get anything. How long am I going to have to wait on the status B list in order to get this heart? Um, but when I had, I mean, when I had the LVAD, that's when I, uh, I bought my motorcycle. Um, actually, prior to that July, I bought the motorcycle. That was... Um, it's a beautiful bike too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually I had a different one before this one. Okay. Yeah, I had a um, uh, a little Sportster, flat black Sportster. It was a nice bike too. But uh, it was in June, so I got it three months after the surgery, and um, I got a. I actually now, now your mom must have been all kinds of all over the place. Yeah. With this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually um, I haven't. I mean. Uh, bits and pieces here and there from from my family and from my wife and my brother they like they they come up where they say like um different you know things they were feeling while they're in the hospital or whatever but I, I never really asked like them like tell me what you were going through basically you know what were you thinking about because i don't know i don't know how how emotional it was for them you know but um um yeah i ended up getting that motorcycle in june i figured uh it was three months after the surgery and I figured like if I, I might as well, I just went through this, I just went through this, uh, surgery. I have this, these battery packs. I'm going to get a transplant. It was kind of a hoorah to myself. I was like, I'm buying a fucking motorcycle. I'm going to start riding this motorcycle. So I did that. I got the motorcycle. I started going, uh, to the, I, I found on Facebook, um, one of my buddies I know from back in the day, uh, Josh, we worked at Blue Hills together, and he, he was posting on Facebook. He was going to these um, these motorcycle runs and stuff. So I was like, oh, cool, I'll check one of those out. I think the first, the f maybe the first one I went to was actually right over here at the uh, the athletic club right there, the 22-kill ride. Right, right. I, I think one that might have been one of the first ones I went to. And then uh, I went to the Danny V ride and all those different rides. And uh, it was I was like, wow, these are these are more like my people, you know what I mean? Cause I, I, um, I went from, you know, working, partying, drinking, hanging out with my brothers every single day. And then all of a sudden I was in the hospital and I was fucking back to Boston with my family. And then I was like, wait, I, now I have no fucking friends. Cause it was like, I mean, I had like the kids I, I, I hung out in high school with, like I, I, I um, met up with them a few times after I hung out with them, but it was it was kind of like, yeah, I have I have these these battery packs and shit. I'm still um, active duty in the Air Force because the Air Force let me stay active duty while I had the LVAD. Um, so I I um, they transferred me to Hanscom up here, but um, yeah, I was like I have these battery packs, this heart pump. I have the uh, I'm active duty Air Force. I can't. I can't do the the skateboard and the smoking weed and the all this stuff that like we used to do. No matter how much I I wish I still could because that was you know wicked fun. But um, I came up here and then all of a sudden I had I didn't have any friends. So going to the the motorcycle events and I see people that were were like me that were you know joking and and swearing up a storm like myself like military guys. It was like all right wow this is. And I, and at first I wasn't even really talking to any of them. I was just like, I was just there. I was just being there. And, um, it was, uh, I ended up going to a f like a few of those, uh, events that first summer I went to uh, probably, probably five, six, seven motorcycle rides just to, just to be around like more people of the same, more, more people that were like me, um, instead of, cause I mean, if I didn't do that, I would have just 
stayed home and been on the couch with this heart pump, you know, with the woe is me attitude, fuck my life, I got this heart pump. But I was I was like, no, I might as well I hop on the motorcycle, go out there and go to these motorcycle runs and see see people like myself and maybe meet a few of them. So you're waiting for a heart. You're on a motorcycle. I ride, so I definitely get what you're talking about. I, I, I think probably that's what it sounds like got you through some of this time because you are alone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean there's no there's there's support groups on I found a few support groups on Facebook, but there was no other people my age that that uh, had this going on, you know what I mean? And especially no other people my age that were in the military having this go on. So it was like I had no one really to talk to that would understand, like, like basically what I was going through or not, not even that I – because I'm not really the type of guy that would uh, actually, you know, want to talk to them. But um, uh there was no really, there was no really people around me that that I, w- I was basically alone in the sense that I I still to this day I haven't seen anybody else that like was in the military I had to get an LVAT and a heart transplant. I did hear stories of other people in the military that that got out and needed heart transplants, but there wasn't. I didn't hear any of uh, people that had the LVAT and then how to get a heart transplant. The call had to come one day that hey, we have a heart for you, right? Yeah. So what was that like? Was it just a spool up and get this done? Yeah. So um, they actually we did a we actually did a dry run uh, like about seven months before it ended up happening. We did a dry run because there was a guy in front of me on the list. I was number two on the list on on the B list. So the guy in front of me, he got his call and they said they called me and they said, "Okay, Connor, we want you here basically as a backup. They want we want you here as a backup because uh, with the tr- heart transplant they could they could call it off at any moment they could they could bring it up to the point where they open up your chest and then they could call off the the surgery for whatever reason so they um, they wanted me there as a backup just in case it didn't work out for the other guy um, so I went there I uh, did the same routine as you did during the during the transplant. So I went to the ER, did the blood work. They brought me up to the ICU, and then I was there for like ten hours. And they said, "All right, today's not your day. You're just a bridesmaid today. Next time you'll be you'll be the one that will will have it." So, which was I mean that was a good feeling because I kind of I got a I mean it sucked because I didn't get art, but um it was a, it was a good dry run. So I knew the 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 moment the. Uh, the basically the what to do you know where to go uh the motions to go through and then um and then i knew i was next basically so that was a good that was a good thing i knew that my time's next but it actually didn't up ended up happening for about seven months after that (laughs) so um um it was a year uh it was 18 months so a year and a half to the day after I got the LVAD implanted that I got the call for the heart transplant, which was a hell of a long time to wait. And uh, I would never want to do it again. And I don't wish it upon my worst enemy to have to live by plugging yourself into a wall for a year and a half. But um, yeah, I mean, I was at at the time I got the trans, I started uh, hitting the gym again when I had the LVAD, which was good. Um, I didn't do too much running but i uh I, I hit the weights and stuff like that I stay strong and then uh on 9 11 just before so it was about 15 days prior to my transplant on 9 11 i hopped on the stair climber i did 110 floors um 
uh, a popular thing people do on on 9/11. They go uh, hit the stair climber. Each each twin tower had 110 floors in it, so you do 110 floors. If you're feeling gutsy enough, you do 220, which I'll probably do this year. But um, uh, just to honor the firefighters that, that died in the towers. But I did that, and then uh, so I, I mean I was feeling good if I was if I was able to do that. And then uh, 15 days later, I got the call from uh, the hospital. So basically, what happened was they called um, they called my wife. I'm pretty sure they called me. I didn't pick up. And then they called, I think my wife, she was sleeping next to me because it was about one in the morning and she didn't pick up. And then they called my parents, I think. And then my parents called us and relayed the message to us. So I was the last one to wake up, uh, basically. And I was the last one to know that like tonight's a night. My parents and my wife knew before me, which was hilarious. But, um, yeah, so they called me, said, you got to get to the hospital. Um, the, I think the doctor asked me, he said, uh, what well, what would you say if if I told you uh, like I I have a heart for you and I was like I was like uh, about I, time yeah yeah I was like what do you want me to say like I was like uh, so I was like that's awesome so uh, we drove there drove to Brigham and Women's did the same thing as we did during the dry run went to the ER did the blood test and then I waited um, until probably I think uh, yeah it was must have been two in the morning when we got there so it was, i don't know what time the surgery started i know my my family probably knows but it was probably about 11 a.m between 9 and 11 a.m so until then i was just sitting sitting in a bed with my family around you know thinking of of the procedure to come you know which is kind of nerve-wracking for me i know my family they're they're all excited because you know it's gonna finally be over but uh for me it was kind of laying there for nine hours saying they they're gonna be they're gonna be taking my fucking heart out soon and putting a new one in and like i'm supposed to just lay there and remain calm like it was right, so the yeah. day in the office yeah exactly so I, I mean i was doing busy work i was paying a couple bills on my phone trying to like stay stay good but um yeah so they rolled me in there did the surgery and uh dr singh was the guy's name the surgeon that did it and then uh i don't remember waking up the next day or whenever i woke up but uh I remember uh, just a couple of days after that when I still had a ton of machines and, and lines in me and stuff. So um, I was in the hospital for nine days after um, um, getting all the, the lines in out of me, getting the, the heart rate of the new heart bumped back up. And uh, yeah, so nine days after the transplant, I was able to walk out of the hospital. That's amazing. That's amazing. So did life get it's kind of like not the right way to say it but did life get back to normal did you feel any different or like your old self if you could even remember that far when you got the heart yeah yeah so um yeah so basically like when you get out of the hospital a lot of people ask you like oh like you're good now right you're back to normal but it's like there's a there's still a recovery period and actually my recovery period for the heart was worse than my recovery period for the LVAD even though my heart was technically failing at that point, and now I have a new heart, uh, the the heart transplant recovery was a hell of a lot harder than the LVAD recovery. The only thing that was more difficult about the LVAD recovery is that I had to learn how to use all the equipment and shit. This new one, I didn't I didn't have to learn how to use a new heart. I basically just you know I live. Um, I had to learn how to sort my medications, but that was about it. But um, yeah, so it was about nine days after that I got out and. Uh, 
Um, after that, it was, uh, I mean, it was tough at first, but ended up, uh, it, it, I mean, it took a few weeks to, to get back to normal, you know. You're, you're out of the hospital, you're doing your thing, and a couple significant things in my mind happened after that. When I met you, you were fully enveloped in the Veterans Brotherhood Motorcycle Club. Yep. And there are a lot of motorcycle clubs out there. There are a lot in Massachusetts, but you gravitated toward that one, and it's very evident that that's a you know a part of your life. Your family, of course, it's very evident to see that they're a major part of your life. But in that spirit of brotherhood and esprit de corps, how did you get into the brother, Veterans Brotherhood? Yeah, so um, I actually I met this guy, Lance. He was the first one I met, and uh, it was kind of a... Um, it was a like a no-brainer. It was a no-shit type of thing, because um, like I told you when I when I got out of the hospital the first time, and I I bought the bike, it was because I it was three months after the LVAD. I was technically my heart was dying at that point, and um, I bought the motorcycle. I started riding the motorcycle, and then I told you the different events I I went to. I started hanging around more of the guys that were like me. So then I found I found this club that it was the guys were just like me, you know, the they're military veterans. They, we can joke about the same stuff. We can we can swear up a storm and nobody fucking looks at us weird. And then True. and then riding the bike, I fell in love with riding the bike when I had the LVAD. So it was it was a no-brainer and then the bi- the biggest part of it too was helping other veterans because when I was in the hospital like I told you in Little Rock when I had the groups like Air Force Wounded Warrior helping me, I had um, that kid, Staff Sergeant Castro, I had him helping me in my family out there. My uh, The wing commander, uh, the base commander, they all came to the hospital. Um, my squadron commander, who was actually a Marine vet before he joined the Air Force, um, I forget his name now, some Italian name, but... Um, he, he actually came to the hospital with uh, the, the chief of our maintenance um, squadron, uh, Chief Bubba Beeson. <laughs> they, uh, they came. They brought me fucking gun magazines and all that. But oh. there, was, there was so many people that helped me out during so many veterans and, and veteran organizations that helped me out during that process that it was, a, it was just a no-brainer to join a club that, that helps out veterans. So it's just repaying because I, I, it's not the same people that help me out. But if there is a veteran in need that, that I can help out, I, I know what it feels like to be in that shitty situation in the hospital at three in the morning. Can't sleep by yourself because the medicine has you shaking. And, and I, I know what it feels like to be that low. So if there's other people out there that I can help and then at the same time hang out with brothers and ride motorcycles, it was yeah, and that's the thing. I just want to be clear. Um, a lot of people, civilian and military, still associate the word motorcycle club with negative, you know, clubs. When I say negative clubs, clubs that do bad things. Yeah. But you guys are very upfront. That's not what you guys are all about. You're about giving back to veterans and being a positive influence in the community. Do, do, do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, very right. I mean, uh, that's exactly right. We're we're a veteran motorcycle club or a non-territorial veteran motorcycle club. So uh, we're a 501c3 charitable organization. So we help out uh, veterans. Basically, the the negative connotation that comes about with motorcycle clubs is just because it 
TV and and the History Channel Gangland, which I I love watching myself. It's a fucking awesome show. But basically, that's when everybody sees a black vest. That's what they think of because they see the the goofy show on uh, the the goofy show on TV with the fucking blondie kid. They see <laughs> they see that show and then they see Gangland. But it's I mean, there's there's thousands of motorcycle clubs out there that are doing awesome things a ton of them charitable organizations they're all doing good things and i know that you all are are constantly looking for members to join and 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 socialize and do good and ride together is that i mean been very clear from day one what's that like when a new guy comes in and he joins you yeah yeah so it's um it's a, it's kind of a, like a um, you're auditioning for us type of thing. I mean, we're not going out there saying, oh, this this guy that just drove by in the Kia, like I'm gonna I'm gonna see if he wants to join a motorcycle club. It's kind of like if you, if you approach us and then you're you know you're hot shit. You want to help out. You want to like you want to ride with us. And I mean, it takes the right guy. You know what I mean? So, are you Harley Davidson only, or are you you know metric as well? Uh, I mean, personally, I would prefer if everyone had the Harleys, but uh, technically, no. Uh, now, wait a minute. Now, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Let's just, I ride a metric bike, and I have ridden with too many Harley guys who have uh, various difficulties. Yeah, yeah. Mechanics. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, there's no... Uh, it's not it's not Harley owned. I, I think we, we got uh we got some Jap bikes, but uh just no uh crotch rockets, basically. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So you're you're doing this, you're you're married, you got, you know, some kids now, and then you know, we're gonna you know, the last part of this podcast, just at a high level, because I want you to come back on. Yeah, yeah. How did you get just at a high level running a marathon? Yeah. I mean, running is bad for you, right? <laughs> That's what some people say. Actually, after I ran the marathon, I saw an article that just recently that said uh, running marathons is bad for you and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no shit, it's stupid. But Well, a couple of things. You ran the marathon, and you know you were talking about the Marine Corps marathon? Yeah. Just no pressure, but there is a bib that I could give you or get you in touch with for 500 bucks. Yep. So we'll take this offline, talk about it, but I, I can, like, it's only 500 bucks. Yeah. And I could help out getting you to that 500 But I'm sitting there, because, folks, he has this on Facebook. He's on Mistress Carrie, who's, you know, been great with veterans. You're going to run the marathon, man, with a, with a new ticker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was it was this hard to train for? Was there any kind of difficulty with that? Yeah, I mean, I actually I only had five six weeks to train for it because I uh, yeah my um, my my dad does jujitsu with me too in Weymouth at uh, Tadeco Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, um, great place to train. And uh, I, I when I when I got sick, I couldn't train jujitsu anymore because I had the batteries and the Elva, the heart pump, all that shit. So I convinced my dad to start doing jujitsu. So he started jujitsu at I think fifty one years old. <laughs> Which is awesome, but um, that's a badass. Yeah, he fell in love with it, but um, we started going to this place in Weymouth. We met uh, a Weymouth firefighter uh, that that uh, or that trains there. I don't. He he's one of those guys that doesn't like social media, so I won't say his name. Sure. But uh, yeah, he's a Weymouth firefighter. He's a Marine Corps vet, um, uh, Marine Corps recon vet. Um, he used to have a bike too. He sold his bike because of uh, uh, babies, but. 
Uh, he, uh, yeah, so he was training for the marathon. He was running for Mass Fallen Heroes, and um, he knows my dad from jiu-jitsu. My dad was, like, he asked my dad, can you help me train? Because, like, you run all these marathons and shit. So uh, he ended up, uh, he was helping him train. And then this other guy came along, um, Jay Ferrara, who's a local Marine, too. He's a Weymouth firefighter as well. Uh, he's a gold star brother as well. Um, oh man, he uh, he uh, works with Mass Fallen Heroes. So he was training with uh, this other guy and my dad at L Street Running Club every Sunday. I think they do runs, and then uh, um, I mean they were running fifteen to eighteen miles every Sunday. So that, that's a shit long long time to be out there. <laughs> so basically, they get to talk in, and then uh, they my dad tells them about my story, and then. Uh, told him that um i was signed up for a half marathon in march and he was like oh no shit he signed up for a half marathon uh and then i did um the previous year i did uh stairs for our troops at gillette stadium i did uh um two veteran 5ks the marine corps honor run 5k um and then i did a 10k and then um i signed up for this half marathon so he's like oh he signed up for a half marathon he's he's doing the running thing uh and then he he actually he went back to Mass Fallen Heroes. He said, "Listen, I got this this Air Force vet that had a heart transplant, uh, and his dad's a runner too. I need I need two more bibs to give to these guys." So he uh, he got us the bibs actually, and I was able to uh, run for Mass Fallen Heroes. But the thing is, I only had about five six weeks to train, and it was um, it was uh, yeah it was six weeks to train. And the marathon was five weeks after the half marathon. So I only had that that much to train. But um, I was like, I, I got the bib. It was a, it, the, I mean, the week after my heart transplant, I told myself I'm going to run a marathon someday. I didn't know that it was going to be this close because I didn't know, yeah, you know yeah. the stars were going to align and, and some, some Marine was going to pop out of nowhere and give me a fucking bib. And, um, but uh, yeah, I got very lucky. And then I, I was, this is, Basically, the, that was the end goal was to run a marathon, which I say I say that now. It's funny because that was the end goal. And then uh, he, I mean, he said I, I can give you a bib, so I was like, no shit. I'll obviously I'll do it. Well, end goal. So one of the things I just want to touch on real quick before we close this down because we could talk for hours just yeah. about <laughs> motorcycles. I'm a marine. You know, I'm all about marines doing cool stuff. Military guys doing amazing stuff. And I gotta say, Connor, it was very disappointing watching that Marine crawl over the finish line. I'm like, come on. Yeah. And there's there, there there's Connor. I mean, just stepping it out, just running. He's got his little you know umbrella hat on because it was raining the day before, and he's just loving life. Yeah. And there's one of mine, who's called a hero. I'm like, hero, hero. We got the Air Force guy with the new ticker. You know, 18 months later, crushing a marathon. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Come on. I mean, uh, the the hero the hero term is thrown out on these articles uh, because of his military service, which I applaud his his Absolutely, military yeah. service. But um, the actual the actual feat of crawling across the finish line, I mean, hopefully it was just due to his just to, uh, due to um, his shitty training plan or or if he had a, a shit day, you know, because he still finished a hell of a lot faster than me, but. Um, hopefully that was just due to his uh just a bad day basically and, and just a shitty training plan but it like like you said from i mean you're a marine so from a marine standpoint you're you're saying 
Like, come on, it's 50 more feet. Just fucking step it out, right? Exactly. But yeah, um, walk across. Yeah. But and then he he was he was getting he was getting hands hands uh, given to him like hey grab my hand I'll I'll help you out and then a soldier ran a soldier in army uniform ran by him in uniform finishing the marathon and get hey take my fucking hand and and that that was the point that I was like all right this is kind of a you know no, thank you thank yeah you. yeah I'm, I'm like come on but you've you've done all this stuff and it sounds like. You know, with with your family, with your wife, with your children, with the Veterans Brotherhood, and now the, these running activities, that the, this isn't just a goal. Yeah, yeah. Like you've got a whole lifetime of things you can do and give back and give hope to other people. So it's just been like great. And I've seen you at the uh, other events. You know, we've talked before, and I'm just really honored and pleased that you came up for number 150 for me. It's kind of a, a dual accomplishment here, Connor. And I yeah. really want to thank you for your time. And hope to have you back on because we haven't even touched jujitsu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we haven't really touched motorcycles. And then I'm not a runner anymore. Uh, I, I do weightlifting, but it, it'd be nice to understand how more that works for you and what you've been able to do. I just want to, you know, see you succeed in life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, yeah, we. I mean, we talked about how how everything came to be, basically. But uh, yeah, there's still a ton more things. Uh, I'd like to talk about for I mean different events I, I've done and then different events I'm gonna do the following year so or this year coming up actually so well next if you don't mind a yamaha strata liner we'll go riding <laughs> sometime and maybe do the podcast off our bikes uh at a stop somewhere but hey folks ladies and gentlemen boys and girls this is number 150 for me uh really a, a good you know watermark for a podcaster really pleased to talk to an air force veteran don't get to talk to a lot of those guys and what connor has done in the in the service and outside has just been amazing connor thanks again no problem thank you hey I'm Travis with Oscar Mike Radio. This is Connor, Air Force veteran, heart transplant, minor extraordinaire, motorcycle guy. We're on the move.